Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of sexual assault. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hi, Matt. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. Okay, so listeners, getting right into it. Last week, Matt and I had a a glitch in the matrix, a shared moment over uh, Dirty John and Dirty Betty. Mm. Something similar has happened to this week. Really? So I have asked Matt not to look at our shared notes until we started recording. So Matt, you may now pull it up and you will see what I wrote to you. Okay, let me look. <laughs> so Matt wrote hashtag free Britney as something we needed to talk about. And literally, again, I got the alert on my phone that Matt was editing our shared note. And I was like, oh, I have to go in there and mention uh, Britney Spears. And literally, that was exactly what you had written. <laughs> and that's awesome. What I love fuck? that. So I wrote my, in all capitals, the notes now say, shut up, Matt. I was going to add this. That's amazing. We're on a real wavelength lately psychic wavelength yeah mm, very because well, you're sync. you're a book psychic and i'm an, a music psychic and britney spears is music so <laughs> britney spears is music <laughs> <laughs> that's the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness okay well last week in the episode i after we finished recording chastised matt because because that's just what n does that's true. It's one of my favorite pastimes. But you didn't give me credit for, what's his name, Logan picking up a roll of duct tape with a pen. So that is one of my uh, items that I predicted for the season. Mm-hmm. So I've now got two out of the three evidence being picked up by a pen or pencil. You do. I went back and looked. I went back and looked. You are you are correct. I, I, I love that it. you didn't trust me. You oh, just had to go back not. and look. <laughs> you would absolutely try to get away with a pen if he had, like, anything anything <laughs> like a like a dowel or a chopstick even though i kind of would give you that too but you know what i mean i just need yeah. to i need to cross check wow this podcast the, the... has made a real investigator out of me <laughs> <laughs> well my other random oh no i have a couple of things okay item number one i have a friend at work who we discovered during the pandemic that we're both fans of real housewives uh, that's the best and now, my new favorite thing to do is every time I ha- I email her, I try to work in a Real Housewives quote. So I was asking her to do a presentation for um, a, a new professionals group that I help manage. And so my opening line to her was like, last year you, <laughs> you gave a presentation and you made it nice! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish, I wish her response was, um, I can't help you with this because you don't support other women. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been great. I th- she did come back to me with a quote. Let me see what it was. Oh, she said, as long as I get recognition as the OG of this presentation, and I'm if I'm not sitting next to Andy, I'm out. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, so much fun. And then I have one more random... Well, we both have the random thing of mm. Free Britney. Well, let's chat. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So... Britney Spears in court this week got to finally, it seems like finally speak her mind about the conservatorship. Mm -hmm. For the first time, it seems. 
Yeah, and the what she said was fucking gnarly. It was honestly perfect, I think. Oh yeah, no, it was perfect, but like No, I I, I know she... what you mean. Yeah, I I agree. And I think it was like just the right um it was like just enough like off the cuff Britney to make uh-huh. it just so sincere. Yeah. But really heartbreaking the rest of it. Really heartbreaking things. Totally. For anyone who hasn't paid attention, uh, her father has had her under conservatorship for like 15 years now, mm-hmm. maybe? I think, yeah. And ever since 2007, I guess, actually. And uh, they wouldn't let her get her IUD removed, so she couldn't have children. They wouldn't let her get married. They forced her to take lithium. Uh, all kinds of really horrifying stuff. So I hope she does get out of this conservatorship because she says, she like said to the judge, I wish I could sue my whole family for the abuse that they've put me through and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So ugh, I, I hope she gets out of it. I So one of the reasons I was putting it on the list was because Sinisterhood did that great two episode special. I think it was just two about Britney Spears, Free Britney. Mm hmm. And they did an updated one on their Patreon, which I need to go listen to. And they're doing another updated one now that, like, more information is coming out. So if you don't listen to Sinisterhood, you should. And if you don't uh, don't listen to it currently, the Free Britney episodes are pretty interesting. Mm, I got to check it out. I still got to check out their episode on... Oh, my God. JFK. Uh, QAnon. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's bookmarked yes. for me. That's a good one. Oh, Nice. Well, um, speaking... Okay. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm just going to save my recommendation for the Patreon episode because I feel like it connects... Oh. Well, I'll mention it in both just because I want everybody to watch this. Yeah, I'll do the same with mine, actually. Perfect. So there is a TV show on, I think, HBO. I'm going to kill you. What? Oh, no, did you already watch this? I recommended this in season <laughs> one to you. We talked about it at length. We talked about the cast... We talked about who was in it. We talked about how the format of the show. I, 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 I actually think I've recommended it twice on the show before. Mm-hmm. And we've definitely <laughs> spoken about it in person. You are that girl well, I knew you were. I just watched it for the first time. That's unbelievable. Okay. Well, speaking of which, the show is called Unbelievable. And I think oh. it's on HBO or is it Netflix? Netflix. 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 It's got... The woman who plays the nurse in Nurse Jackie that's not Jackie. Is it Merritt Weaver? Yes. Okay. And her co-star is Toni Collette. Dream. Perfection. And the two of them together are phenomenal. It's a... I really, really liked it. Oh my gosh. I absolutely loved it too. Yeah. So good. And... Uh, yeah, I will mention it on our Patreon episode that we're going to be recording shortly because, uh, there's some connections there. Mm. Okay. Um, I was going to mention, have you listened to Live and Die in LA yet? I've listened, I listened to the first season, yes. Okay. I really love the first season still. Um, season two is out now. It's currently on, so it's, I think, in episode five. Uh Uh-huh. So I've binged through that the other day, and I'm just eagerly awaiting the next episode. It's taking place in Glendale. Okay. Um, it's, I think, the story of Elaine Park. I hope I'm getting that right. Okay. It is really wild, and it's the case that he actually was going to be doing first that inspired oh. him to do the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, I have a question. Mm. Is the first season, is that the one about the, like, aspiring actress? Correct. Okay. Um, and then I was also going to recommend a few other things, but I couldn't write them on the shared note. 
<laughs> I for for now like 48 hours I've told Matt he could not look at the show notes. I know, and I was like I'm going to forget this. So, um just because you recommended it the other day, the how to fix a drug scandal? Oh yeah. I mentioned that I had started it a long time ago. I finally have gotten back into it, so I'm about halfway through. Really Good. insane. I really like the way yeah. they're doing it too. It's well produced. For sure. And I watched uh, just a couple of documentaries I want to mention really quick. The Strange History of Don't Ask, Don't Tell on HBO. And that was really interesting because I really don't know a lot about details of a lot of these legislative things that have (laughs) oppressed my own community for so long. Yeah, (laughs) You know, like I know what they are, but I don't know dates and like how oppressive things were. Yeah. Yeah, it was really great. It was really interesting, really great. And it came out right before, I think, the repeal of it. Okay. And lastly, I watched, and this is an older one too, Untouchable on Hulu. It's the Harvey Weinstein documentary. Oh. Oh my gosh. How was that? What a gross pig, honestly. (laughs) What a disgusting gross pig. And what, like, filth reviled. Yuck. So if you want to watch a gross pig... And understand, <laughs> <laughs> and understand, um, ugh, untouchable. It was, it was good. Illuminating. <laughs> you know, what's so funny. Speaking of gross pigs, that just like popped into my mind. The very first episode of black mirror where oh. the president has to fuck a pig on yep. like national television. Oh my gosh. And I didn't understand that the, that black mirror was like standalone episodes, kind of <laughs> twilight zoney. So I thought there was a whole season about this president who was fucking a pig. And I was like, I don't know that I want to keep watching this. <laughs> me too. Same thing happened to me. <laughs> it's such a good show. If you haven't watched Black Mirror, go watch it right now. Yeah, totally. Matt, the mm. other day I was uh, exploring the attic. And oh. inside of my attic, I found this this old box full of letters and they were letters from the people who I think lived in this house before. And I wanted to share the message inside of the letter with you. Oh my gosh. I love old letters. I love this discovery. Share with me. Well, this person must've had some kind of psychic abilities because it was written. It looks like hundreds of years ago, but what it actually says is that ripped from the headlines has a Patreon and uh, it's available right now for our listeners to subscribe to. Get the hell out of town. I know. And it went on to say that there are three tiers. One is just for a dollar. You can give us some support a month if you just love us. $5 a month gets you access to a Fashion Court episode where we review the fashions of Law & Order, and it's a video episode. And $10 a month for discount at our merch store. You get a monthly bonus episode where we cover SVU. And uh, the $5 one, you also get a a free sticker that I designed, which is very cute. It's adorable. Wow, that's amazing. I know. I'm so glad that I stumbled upon that letter so that I could share it in today's recording. You're so lucky. You're so lucky that I made that find. (laughs) Matt, what I realized also, for anybody who isn't subscribe to our patreon what did we cover what was the like case in the last episode or what was it about the last one didn't have a direct inspiration so i covered three oh that's right cases that dealt with um the topic of the episode which was ooh, it was heavy uh incest yeah. and sexual assault on children yeah yikes so i covered three different stories while just talking about the topic and trying to kind of Speak about the communities that this affects the most that get the least amount of coverage. It was a great episode. And let me tell you, we're recording our June Patreon episode today as well. And I am 
I'm the case researcher, and I am very, very excited to tell this story because I did a lot of research. I'm excited. I I heard the amount of research you did, which is staggering, and I watched the episode, and I am just very excited to hear what this is all about. So, yeah. And speaking of Patreon things, we're also filming Fashion Court today. For those who are looking forward to the next Fashion Court episode... Get ready for a stapler in his underwear. Spoiler alert. Oh, my God. Listen, if you're not subscribed to our Patreon, you should be right now because we are giving you stapler in his underwear this month. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, should we get into today's episode? I'm ready. Okay. Well, I am the episode recapper and the episode, this is season two, episode 17 of Law and Order, and it is called Sisters of Mercy. Mm. Isn't that a song? Is it? I'm gonna look this up really quick. In season one, we often like talked about the episode title being inspired by something, but I kind of forget that sometimes they try to do like a play on words with the titles. Yeah, they usually I always check the title and see if it means anything, but lately they've been yeah. very boring, like vengeance, revenge, yeah. <laughs> retribution, death, um justice. <laughs> Sisters of Mercy is a song by Leonard Cohen. Um So the Religious Sisters of Mercy, this is from Wikipedia, are (laughs) members of a religious institute of Catholic women from 1831 in Dublin, Ireland. And as of 2019, they have about 6,200 sisters worldwide. Interesting. It's also a song. (laughs) So this episode opens in a deli, and we kind of see a couple at a table who's sort of arguing And they are making it clear to the audience that these are folks who maybe are struggling with housing security and, uh, you know, one of them doesn't want to go back to the shelter. And through a very quickly escalating conversation, the woman in the pair whips out a gun and says, well, maybe I'll just die and puts the gun to her throat and then starts waving the gun around, threatening everyone else. It was wild. It was very wild. It it didn't necessarily, like, the build-up to that moment was minimal. <laughs> and honestly, that is not proper diner behavior. It's really not. Eat your disco but fries and sit down. Disco fries? Have you, oh my god, have you ever had disco fries? No, what the hell is that? Is there, like, crushed up mirrors on <laughs> it or something? <laughs> no. It's, uh, it's uh, usually, like, steak fries or thick fries, but d- diner fries. It could be the okay. long fries. Anyway. And it has... Gravy, like brown gravy. Uh-huh. Mozzarella cheese. Okay. And it's like melted all over the top of it, and it's uh-huh. delicious. Isn't that poutine? Poutine is the same thing, but with cheese curd. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Disco fries. So it's like the Americanized version of poutine. Oh, it's so good. It's like my favorite diner late night snack, especially if you've had a few drinks. One time I had come home from a drag gig and it was late at night, but I was really hungry because when you're in drag, you can't really eat. And so I made myself macaroni and cheese and I had fully de-dragged at this point. I had showered everything, right? Mm -hmm. I make my macaroni and cheese. I go to sit down to eat my macaroni and cheese and there is a rhinestone inside of my macaroni and cheese. How it got there, I have no idea. (laughs) Because there were no rhinestones left attached to me, but one worked its way into my mac oh, and cheese. wow. Magical. Let me tell you, <laughs> there are rhin- I will find rhinestones in my belongings until the day I die. Oh my god, it's just bigger glitter. <laughs> it is. It never goes away. Um, I just need to point out that the guy that she is with is really hot. He is pretty cute. 
really, really cute. He should definitely be be on our next fashion court. Okay, yeah, I liked him. So he threatens to leave once she starts waving the gun around. She kind of, it seems like, accidentally maybe fires a shot and it shoots the glass out of the diner door. And then we get to, like, the police showing up to the scene because clearly somebody's called the police. They're interviewing the guy that she was with. And he says that, yeah, she was, like, maybe on, like, five or six hits of meth, so she probably didn't know what was going on. They wheel her away in an ambulance, and the detectives kind of, like, get her ID and see that it's an ID issued from a Catholic drug rehab center. So she's clearly living at this facility, and this is her ID issued by them. Mm -hmm. Her name is Maggie, and she turns to Logan and unprompted just says, I've got nowhere to go. And that's like the fade out to the title sequence. It was a weird opening scene. It was. And it happened very quickly. Very quickly. I kind of preferred it. And by the way, when that gunshot happened, yes. it was so poorly timed. It was like <laughs> I didn't even notice. He ducked and then the gunshot like went off. Like so oh, the sound and the it was so pathetic. I was like, It's this like is bewitched like... where the uh, chandelier crashes into the table, <laughs> but the table collapses before the chandelier hits it. Exactly like that. So we get the title sequence, and I thought it was time to do something about climate change. So I ran for Congress, I got elected, and I passed extensive energy and pollution reform bills and saved us all from an uninhabitable planet. Wow, how dare you! (laughs) (laughs) We come back from the title sequence, and we're in the hospital, and Logan and Soretta appear to be talking to a woman who works at the Catholic rehab facility, and she wants to take Maggie home, and we learn that her name is Sister Bettina, also referred to throughout the episode as Sister B. Sister B. I like Bettina. I do too, especially because there's a an episode of Will and Grace where Jack decides he doesn't like somebody's name, so he's gonna he says, "I'm gonna call you Bettina," <laughs> and it's a, a line for some reason that sticks in my head that Miles and I quote to each other all the time. Love that. So Sister B is arguing that Maggie was only 16; she was high; she didn't know what was she, she was doing. You really shouldn't arrest her. But Logan and Soretta are like, she waved a gun around in the middle of a crowded <laughs> diner and shot it. So we're definitely going to need to charge her with something. Soretta goes and talks to Maggie, and tells her that either she'll be held in custody. Or they could release her to the custody of the rehab facility. And as he's saying this, Maggie sees Sister B coming toward her, and she screams at her, tells her to get out, and is crying. And Sister B is kind of like, I don't know what this is about, but she leaves. And Soretta asks her, like, uh, what was that? And she says that she and Sister Bettina were in the shower together because Maggie had had the stomach flu, and she, like, vomited, and Sister B was helping her get cleaned up. And she says that in the shower, Sister B had her hands all over her, and she starts crying. So the implication is that Sister B had sexually assaulted Maggie. Mm. So, back at the station, Logan Serretta and uh, what's-his-name, the captain, Captain Cragen, are debating if Maggie's story is even credible. Because they're like, she's an addict, uh, and the nun doesn't know why she was so angry, so should we even believe her and pursue this? And thankfully, they do actually go and pursue it and don't just, like, dismiss it as, you know, nothing. Mm -hmm. So they go and interview the executive director of Haven House, which is the facility. And his name is Jack Powell. And it's also, again, William H. Macy. God, I love him. Back again. Back again. And it's a different character. Uh, Just as good. I feel like usually when we get 
like the real famous people on the show as guest actors, usually they aren't there for multiple episodes for different characters, you know? Yeah, yeah. This is special. Different seasons even. Wow. Yeah. So he says that Maggie's roommate, Maria, did tell him about Sister Bettina's behavior with Maggie, but he thinks that Maggie's lying. Uh, But the roommate, Maria, says that she saw Maggie and Sister Bettina in the shower together. So when they speak with her, by the way, she is Judy Reyes from Scrubs. That's the actor's name. I don't know the character's name. I think Scrubs is a terrible show. I hate Scrubs too, but I recognized her because she was in a few other things I liked. Oh, she was in um, Dirty Betty, I heard. I I read on her, uh, I I heard, I read it on her um, IMDb. She was a character named Virga. I don't even remember that character. I don't know, but yeah, I I like her a lot. I do not like Scrubs. Scrubs is terrible. Sorry. (laughs) So, she says it was around 1 a.m., and after Sister Bettina took Maggie to the shower, they were gone for a while, and Maria, like, got concerned, so she went after them, and she saw Sister Bettina, like, touching Maggie and kissing her in the shower. So she says she went back to her room, and when Maggie came back, she was crying, told her Sister B had, like, assaulted her, and Maria tells Logan and Soretta that Sister B has come onto her before, too, and, you know, maybe this was her finally taking advantage of somebody when they were kind of incapacitated and in the shower. Mm-hmm. And when they go to talk to Sister Bettina about this, she says that Maria is mixed up and came from a life on the streets. And so to her... She was kind of saying, like, she's done sex work, she's only ever lived on the streets, so to her, like, that's the only time, you know, people will touch you, is, like, if they're trying to engage in sex, she doesn't understand what it means to, like, have loving, caring affection for somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. So, she insists she's just affectionate, helping the kids feel loved because they don't ever feel loved before. So, Logan and Soretta have their classic on-the-street debate. Hmm. Logan thinks that Sister B didn't do it. Soretta thinks anything is possible, so they keep kind of pursuing this line of inquiry, and the psychiatrist at the hospital, uh, sorry, at the psychiatric hospital, the police psychologist, Dr. Olivet, interviews Maggie. Mm. So Maggie says she had never been afraid of Sister B before, and she hadn't picked up on her being interested before, and she thought Sister B was a good person, not like everyone else who has used her before. She says she trusted her, and she knows she did it because she's been assaulted before, and she knows how it feels. And she says, she tells a story about how her stepfather had started abusing her at eight years old. Mm -hmm. So she, Dr. Olivet, tells Logan and Soretta that Maggie had been trying to rebuild her trust of adults, but Sister B has, like, shattered all of that. And uh, I feel like she also makes some kind of prediction, like, she'll never love again. Like, it's really, it's kind of not great (laughs) how she deals with Maggie. Um, So they continue investigating Sister B. They go and search her rooms. And inside, Logan finds the clothes that Maggie had been wearing that night. So they see the, the shirt that she had kind of thrown up on. We also see that Sister B has been keeping them in her room at the facility and also has Maggie's underwear from that night. So the kind of competing theories when they're talking with Stone and Robinette about this and and whether to charge her and keep investigating, they kind of think either she is somebody who assaulted Maggie and she's keeping these clothes as like a trophy, or Robinette says she could have just taken them to like wash them for her. Right. And by the way, while they didn't pick up this evidence with a pencil or pen, they certainly picked it up with their bare hands. (laughs) 
Y- right. Yes. No gloves. Oh, at all. Underwear. <laughs> <laughs> they look like those disposable underwear that they like give you in the doctor's office sometimes. <laughs> that are like made of like paper, the, a dental bib cloth. <laughs> yeah. So. They, Sister B says that she's been working at the rehab facility for eight years. So Robinette is kind of theorizing if she is assaulting, or if she did assault Maggie and she's been there for eight years, this wouldn't necessarily, it's likely that there would be previous incidents leading up to this or other accusations. And so they kind of go digging into her past and William H. Macy tells them there's never been any complaints about her. And the diocese has no reason to cover up anything for her because they don't like Sister B, because she's too radical, arguing for women's equality in the church. Ah, what a maniac. Yeah. So he tells them about a woman named Anne Houston, who is from another uh, center, but is friends with Sister B. They go interview her, and she is up and down saying Sister B was a great person, everyone loved her, these charges are crap. So back at the station, they're kind of stumped on how to proceed, so they decide, let's polygraph Sister B. She passes on direct questions about the molestation charges, but she fails some of the simpler questions, like, are you telling the truth? Or, you said Maggie had the stomach flu that night, is that true? So, like, on those questions, she shows deception. Hmm. Suspish. Yeah. So they decide they are going to charge her at this point. And when they go pick her up, Sister B is present with her lawyer, who immediately is like, my client refuses to answer any questions. And uh, in a meeting with Stone, Sister B says that she'll tell them what happened that night. She says, okay, Maggie didn't have the flu. She was actually drunk. And I was hiding her clothes in my room because she had gotten charged with being drunk before. And this would have been her third report, and she would have been automatically kicked out of the rehab facility. So I didn't want Maggie out on the streets. I wanted to protect her from getting kicked out. So I lied, said she had the stomach flu, and hid her clothes so that I could clean them up. So Maggie, when they interview her again, she says, like, so what? She still assaulted me. And then Robinette's like, walk me through this. And she's like, I I was in the shower with her. But, you know, like, I I can't remember everything. And he says, what do you mean you can't remember? And she says, she guesses that she passed out. So despite the fact that she was actually unconscious, she insists that the assault did happen because she said Maria saw it and told her everything. Maria, Maria. (laughs) Do you remember that summer where you could not escape Santana and Rob Thomas? Oh my god. It was everywhere and it's a hot one <laughs> i feel like do you like stuff, rob thomas um i liked matchbox 20 and i think rob thomas oh. is cute huh. um i don't know if i really listened to any of his a lot of his stuff but i like i for some reason bought i for some reason bought his solo album not being a fan of matchbox 20 really mm. but there's one good song on it called lonely no more that's really good so out there go listeners go listen to it <laughs> and through a series of events uh in some sort of conversation i had with davy one day years ago <laughs> we started calling people trash box 20 <laughs> <laughs> when they were terrible <laughs> i like that so they go and interview maria again and they realize maria realizes they've caught her in a lie because she had told them maggie came back from the shower and told me everything about it but clearly that didn't happen because uh, Maggie was unconscious. And so Stone's like, why would you make up this story about Maggie having told you about the assault? 
And she's like, okay, okay, like, I didn't see Sister B molest Maggie. Um, I just wanted to get rid of Sister B. Because, quote, Sister B knew about me and Mr. Powell, which is William H. Macy's character, Mm. the executive director of the facility. So Maria tells them that she had been getting preferential treatment from Mr. Powell. He had, like, let her off of chore duty. He let her go to the movies. And the implication is that they were having a sexual relationship in exchange for these favors that he was giving her. And she was worried that Sister B was going to find out her secret and that she would get kicked out. Hmm. So at this point, they're like, okay, we're dropping the charges against Sister B because Maria made up the whole story says she never saw it, Maggie never told her it happened, and Maggie doesn't remember it happening, so they think nothing happened there. But Robinette, kind of, or Stone, rather, wants to go after Powell, William H. Macy, because he thinks he must have abused his power over the girls and women in his rehab facility. Clearly, he did that with Maria, but there's probably other cases, they think. Mm Mm-hmm. So Robinette talks with Maggie, and she says that there was one girl that she remembers before that there were rumors about her and Powell. So when they go and interview her, she says that, yes, me and Powell had a sexual relationship a couple times a week, and they ask how old she was, and she says, 15. Mm. And in exchange, much like Maria, she didn't have to do chores, but she tells them that he told her if anyone, if she said anything to anyone, she would be kicked out of the facility immediately and would be living on the street. Mm. Well, one thing that this actress has never had a relationship with is a hairbrush. Hairbrush, <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's also feeding a baby, and they kind of, like, with unspoken words, we're to realize as the audience that the baby is William H. Macy's baby. Mm -hmm. So, she says she won't testify because she doesn't want to risk anything. Like, enough things have gone wrong in her life. She doesn't want to lose custody of her child. She doesn't want any any drama. No more drama. (laughs) Marriage obliged. So... Stone thinks that even without her, Maria's story is enough to charge William H. Macy with rape. <laughs> I probably should use his character name, but I think everybody on the on the call, <laughs> I think everybody listening knows I'm not actually talking about William H. Macy. <laughs> yes, I hope so. So um, they think that since William H. Macy was in a position of power and he threatened to kick Maria out on the street if she didn't have sex with him, that that was enough to charge him with rape because... Uh, Stone essentially says that by law, like, rape implies force that either is, that people will either fear being physically harmed or fear that they their life is in danger. And so he's saying that by her reali- being afraid of being kicked out on the streets and, and potentially having no place to live, that is, like, the fear of death, essentially. So... They go and interview Powell, and he says that he never forced her, he thinks that Stone is stretching the law, and Stone thinks that her being kicked out plays on this fear of living on the streets and of potentially dying, of, of it being a life-or-death situation. Right. So they take, her, take him to trial, and Maria testifies that he took her into his office, started touching her, and that he would have thrown her out of the house if she didn't have sex with him. And on cross-examination, Powell's lawyer, William H. Macy's lawyer, asks if she's ever been arrested before, and she says, yes, I've been arrested three times for prostitution. And this lawyer, who I would like to see run over with a truck, calls her an offensive word for a sex worker multiple times. Unbelievable. Unbelievable that that the whole courtroom wasn't screaming. Mm -hmm. But anyway... 
they get Powell on the stand and he says that he thought Maria was coming on to him because like, oh, I was just so nice to her. Or maybe she is manipulative and she thought she could get something out of me with, uh, you know, with this relationship. Mm. And he's like, I initially put her off, but she was so persistent. You poor thing. And then he says something also very gross where he says that girls like that are trained to use sex to get whatever they want gross and i never threatened her i never intimidated her he says he was probably the only guy who's ever been nice to her and he doesn't understand why maria would say she's afraid of him what an angel yeah such a charmer stone questions him and kind of like goes through a laundry list of other girls that had been kicked out of the facility beforehand And one of them, after being kicked out, died of a drug overdose. Another one passed away due to AIDS. Another one was murdered. And the rest just kind of disappeared. And so with this evidence, Stone is essentially asking the jury to say, like, isn't it reasonable that Maria, seeing this history and seeing that he has the power to kick people out and it really can be a life or death situation— isn't that enough for for this to meet the definition of a rape charge if she was afraid for her life? Right. So the jury comes back. The verdict is guilty. And even though they think they might lose the case on appeal, Stone thinks that, you know, this was good because I've set a precedent in the law for expanding the definition of force in rape law. And that is the end of the episode. Get it, Stone. Get it. Wow. That was good. Thanks. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Well, any guesses, any thoughts? I don't, I couldn't, no, I couldn't really think of a a famous case that this reminded me of, other than like, obviously all of the church sex abuse scandals Mm -hmm. that we hear about all the time. Right. Yeah. So this is, this will predate that. It is inspired by the Covenant House scandal. Okay. All right. So. I'm going to go over uh, a little bit of the backstory on Covenant House in general. Okay. And that's impossible to do without talking about a gentleman named Bruce Ritter. So, Any relation to John Ritter? I, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Ritter was born in 1927 in the capital of New Jersey, Trenton. Which, by the way, literally, was it last night or the last time that I saw you? I didn't. Oh, it was last time. Yeah. I did not know what the capital of New Jersey was, and I was really shocked to learn that it was Trenton. It's like, I've been there once on a class trip, I think, and I think we looked at army barracks. (laughs) Okay. There were a lot of trees, I think. It was, you know, unremarkable. Yeah. So he was actually born under the name John Ritter. Oh my god! (laughs) Yeah. Shut up! Right? But That's weird. I know. But he'll later change his name, um, which we'll get into in a little bit, but... Yeah, he, he's only really known for Bruce. It was very hard to even find his original name. Was it because of John Ritter? No. <laughs> um, I don't think so, because it was 1927 when he was born. <laughs> okay, fair. Unless John Ritter is like one of those time-traveling... Time-traveling wizards! Uh, reptilian, yeah. Yeah. So... By the way, if you're not subscribed to our Patreon, Detective Munch in Law & Order SVU is a time-traveling <laughs> wizard. So you should go listen to the episode solely to hear about that. Absolutely. You really, really should. So, uh, I'm only going to reference him as Bruce here on out. Okay. He was only four when his father passed away, and that left his mother to raise himself and his four siblings in the 1930s. 
Wow. Yeah. And this That's is... That's hard in the 30s, like, recovering from the Great Depression, exactly. being a single woman with four kids. Five kids. Oh, five kids. Five Jeez. Kids, yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they get through it. She has a lot of odd jobs, and the older kids help out when they can. But mm-hmm. by the end of World War II, winding down, um, Bruce, now 18 years old, joins the U.S. Navy. And in 1947, he joined a Franciscan order with the intent okay. of becoming a Trappist. What's a Trappist? So I started looking it up, and I got into like this real rabbit hole. <laughs> it sounds like a hunting term. It's not. It's a type of mon- uh, monastic lifestyle. Okay, I was going to say Trappist monk. I think I've heard that phrase before, mm-hmm. but I do not know what it means. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? It doesn't matter, because as I was looking at it and going down this rabbit hole, I read uh-huh. ahead a little bit, and he changed his mind. So okay. I was like, well, so do I. <laughs> in uh 1956 he's officially ordained as a francis as a franciscan however just not okay you know looking to the monastic lifestyle anymore all right and he this is when he takes the name bruce because i think that's what you have to do you have to take a, a new name i guess when you give up being a priest when you become a franciscan interesting because it said it like it was very normal like oh when he's ordained as a that. franciscan he takes on the Assume name the Bruce, name of Bruce and it seemed very normal so that's my assumption I mean if you're gonna pick a name wouldn't you pick something a little better than Bruce like right I don't know it's not I mean, <laughs> everybody's named Bruce subscribe to this podcast is like well fuck you too <laughs> I know all the follow watch everyone that actually listens is named Bruce, Bruce. <laughs> um after a few years he's you know trying to find a more permanent footing what he's gonna do with his new Franciscan lifestyle he finally begins to settle into the Bronx, and he starts teaching at Manhattan College, um, starts mm-hmm. teaching theology. And this is when he is around, he's 36 years old approximately, it's 1963. Okay. Um, I don't know a lot about the Franciscans, especially the Catholic order, which is what he's under. Uh-huh. But I have met, I reconnected with someone that I knew back when I was working in Jersey at Starbucks. He mm-hmm. was a customer of mine, very gay, very out of the closet. <laughs> and <laughs> I randomly ran into him in Santa Barbara like a, a year or two ago and weird. yeah i hadn't seen him in like 20 years he came into my starbucks <laughs> and i was that like is a weird weird coincidence it was such a wild moment <clears throat> but i mentioned it because he's like oh yeah I'm, I'm part of the franciscan um order or whatever now and i was like oh really? i didn't really even know what that was but he was there with another guy who was also in the order and who was also i'm gonna go out on a limb and say very gay uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this is a more progressive thing. Um, I think it's like a, a Protestant branch. Oh, uh-huh. But okay. I wonder. I really don't know. So, listeners, if you have any information about the Franciscans and uh, who they are and their view on <laughs> queer people, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. In 1968, Bruce Ritter decides that he needs to practice what he's preaching and stop mm-hmm. just teaching it. And so he leaves the field of academia and he decides to focus his ministry practices on sheltering homeless youth. Okay. He recruits fellow Franciscans along the way and they work at this for a while in the city in like uh, areas that are like underserved and it's going okay but he's having a really hard time with their safety and the safety of the folks that they're trying to help um every time they rent out an apartment or like a little small complex uh they're they're robbed constantly sometimes his like franciscan habit is robbed from him and he has to go get new ones and all that it's not going great 
is it just because they're in an area with a higher rate of crime? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. They're in an area with a higher rate of crime, but it's also an area with a higher rate of homelessness. And so mm-hmm. they're trying to target that youth, but they're not really taking them out of the scenario, right. you know? Right. Yeah. So they struggle a little bit, but they're they're on a mission and they're trying to get better locations. Eventually, in the 1970s, homelessness becomes a really hot topic issue. And it gets a lot more wide media attention, and it's mainly focused on the idea of homeless youth in America. Mm-hmm. With this, Ritter sees a huge opportunity, since this is like his whole campaign. And so he uses this platform to get more media attention, and he finally gets to formally incorporate his ministry under the name Covenant House. Okay. And this is in 1972. He also is able to obtain grants from the city that eventually give him the opportunity to open several other small locations in Greenwich Village and East and the East Village areas of New York City. Mm-hmm. And this is areas where homelessness was really, really rampant at the time, and it seemed to be where a lot of the homeless youths were accumulating. Okay. And these areas are also very big gay epicenters of New York City. Um, Greenwich Village is, I believe, where um, a lot of, like, historic riots took place and a lot of big stances took place this is where a lot of even now and so i think it's not surprising that there's like an alarming rate of homelessness here because if you look at the statistics a lot a really really high percentage of the youths that were homeless at the time and in general are gay trans and otherwise queer so yeah, we talked about that on a previous episode, I think. Isn't the statistic like one in four? Yeah, it's pretty wild. Homeless youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Stonewall Inn is in Greenwich Village. Oh, right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Ritter with Covenant House, he gets a lot of p- positive publicity for saving children from what he's saying are um, people who are exploiting them for child pornography or sex trafficking. And so by the late, or by the 80s, he's becoming more popular he's becoming more well known he's getting a lot more funding and he's been able to open locations out of state and in canada in the press ron reagan the or ron reagan (laughs) you know ron good old ron in the press uh ronald reagan the then president in 1984 praises covenant house in his state of the union And by all accounts, he's doing great things for people. He's getting awards, and he's known in the press to constantly be calling the teenage residents of Covenant House, quote, my kids, or nice kids, and gorgeous kids. Okay, that last one's not okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think that they were listed in that order. (laughs) Purposefully. (laughs) So in 1987 now, Bruce Ritter makes the papers because he's outbidded a very angry and bitter ed koch who was the mayor at the time Hmm. he outbid him for a building and he spent 33 million dollars on it okay so he's doing really well then yeah (laughs) and ed koch had 30 million dollar deal in place for it and when he finds out he's really bitter there's like a public little war um and Koch accuses him of stealing it and he ultimately lets it go and and doesn't pursue the the nasty little campaign he has about him in the press. Um, (laughs) And he says, quote, it is very difficult to enter combat with a priest, especially one suffering from cancer, end quote. (laughs) And it just was casually dropped that he has cancer. This is how I I found it out. You didn't didn't mention that. (laughs) Yeah, it's not mentioned in any article until this one and like a little bit later on. It's, yeah, I still don't know what type of cancer he had. (laughs) 
So, by 1989, Ritter is now 62 years old. He's a Franciscan priest, and he has an $85 million a year rescue network in 10 cities and five foreign sites. Yeah, it's huge. In 1989, the DA, Morgenthau, announces that they are investigating allegations of financial improprieties at Covenant House involving Bruce Ritter. The allegation is at the time that comes out, is that he was using organization funds to pay for a 20-year-old man's apartment, um, like the furnishings of the apartment and other such luxury expenses. Hmm. Very suspicious. Yeah. It's not long before these allegations explode into ones of sexual nature instead. And from this point on, all of the reporting on the issue refers to the the man who was making the allegations mm-hmm. as, quote, 20-year-old former prostitute. Yeah, so you can definitely see, even when his name is released, they still label him uh, before his name as 20-year-old former Former prostitute prostitute. every time. And then at the same time, um, just showing you where the public opinion is being placed, Mm -hmm. Bruce is is named as Father Ritter through the whole article. All the articles oh, as yeah. well. He's suddenly fought. Yeah. He, all the previous ones about him, like fighting for the the property. He's Bruce Ritter. Now he started. He starts Father to be Father Ritter. Ritter. Yeah. So the man claims that he was given financial benefits from Ritter in return for a sexual relationship with him. And Bruce Ritter, of course, says, you know, quote, "I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of any crime." And he describes how the former Covenant House resident, who has now been identified as Timothy Warner at this time, or Timothy War- Warner, he describes him as terrified and emotionally troubled he does admit only to being foolish and too trusting uh, this is ritter when he would take trips with the young the young people because Mm -hmm. he did share a room with them on occasions and on three occasions he shared a room with timothy okay but he says i've done this with hundreds of young runaways and there's never been any issue and he says that he's never even been within quote even the appearance of impropriety all right so i don't know if that's a great uh admission to make that you're sleeping in a hotel room with hundreds of young runaways but you know probably not great no you know his never been an issue not long after these allegations go public the father of timothy warner whose name is alton kite comes forward he says his son is the one who's making the allegations but his name is not timothy it's actually kevin kite and that he has a quote personality disorder and a history of quote hurting those who try to help him he also this is his father mm-hmm. he okay. also discloses that he's not 20 years old he's 26 years old okay in the same interview however he also says he had quote drifted into a homosexual lifestyle end quote haven't we all mm-hmm. <laughs> so this article that is you know basically damning this this guy's credibility right is also listing as one of the things to damn his credibility that he had l- drifted into a homosexual lifestyle Right, exactly. So I can imagine why he ran away and changed his name. Yeah. It's also reported that officials at Covenant House obtained birth records of who this Timothy Warner person was. And Mm -hmm. it was a 10-year-old boy who had died. And they, um, under undisclosed circumstances still, they obtained his records. And it was without parent permission or awareness. And they made a fake ID for, for Kevin Kite. Okay, sorry, I just want to make sure I understand. So mm-hmm. Kevin Kite, the son of the man who said he drifted into a homosexual lifestyle, mm-hmm. ran away from home 
ended up at Covenant House, and at Covenant House, they used a dead 10-year-old's ID for him. Yeah, and gave him a fake ID with a new new Got identity. Under, okay. With no explanation of exactly why, um, yeah. but it, it was investigated and found to be true, but no charges were filed for it. That's weird. Yeah, so just a little unusual. Hmm. Okay. By February of 1990, amid the investigation, because it was going on for quite a while, Ritter decides to step aside from his church duties, and he says he's going to go to recuperate. Um, he makes mm. no mention of how long or anything or, you know, what he intends to do when he's done recuperating. Right. And he says, quote, I am profoundly saddened by the allegations against me and the need to deny them constantly. I have no way of proving my innocence. My accusers cannot establish my guilt. I devoutly hope the inquiries underway will bring an end to this incredibly painful chapter in my life. I'm reserving judgment for now. Right. So, right before this, another allegation by a 33-year-old man named John Melican surfaces, saying that Ritter had engaged in sexual relations with him from his teenage years through 1986. Okay. A Paul Johnson also comes forward with a similar story from his youth. And a Daryl Basile comes forward, and he says that he had a sexual relationship with Ritter from the time he was 14 for a little bit on. And all of this is, of course, denied by Ritter. And all of these are boys that were residents of Covenant House at the time of their, what they're accusing. Right. Ritter says he blames his hubris for trusting too much, and he knew the risks that, you know, they were all taking with working with kids in this type of environment and kids of this type of um, lifestyle. And he should have seen this coming, but, you know, he just wanted to help, and, you know, he hopes that he, is, he can clear his name. Right, he's just like, I'm just a good person trying to do good things, and of course this would happen. Right, right. And he's uh, he feels foolish, and all his colleagues tell him he's foolish for not seeing this coming. Yeah, okay. New York City Schools Chancellor Frank uh, Macchiarola, that's how I'm going to pronounce it, he <laughs> he takes over for Ritter, for Ritter at Covenant House right afterwards. But by the end of February, which is the same month that Ritter announced he was stepping aside, both Ritter and Macchiarola resign after a meeting with the board. Um, there's a lot of question of why. Yeah. Um, they say that, you know, they didn't see a way to move past the accusations, I believe, against Ritter. Or that Ritter didn't see a way that they would be able to move past it and it wouldn't be right for him to continue on with the, you know, with the duties. It would be too distracting. And okay. um, Macchiarola just says that he didn't agree with some of the ways they were going forward. And the members of the board who, I guess, you know, remained said that he mm -hmm. probably just saw the writing on the wall. Okay, yeah. So the allegations that were investigated by the Franciscans were just Mr. Basile's. They didn't um, investigate the other two boys. Why? It's unclear. I think they found the credibility of one to be poor, which was the one who, you know, lied about his age, lied about his name, and... Those things turned out to be true. He was 26, and his name was Kevin Kite and all of this. Oh, so, so they're saying, like, that wasn't child molestation because he was older. Well, they're saying that they, they don't believe he, he was credible because he lied about all of these things. So they, they didn't look into that one. And, the, and when, I, I mean, the identity thing is weird, but if you're running away from home to escape an awful situation, I could understand some people wanting to change their name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So, sure. I don't know. And it also seems the... shitty to just dismiss him as not credible. Exactly. And I think the circumstances of getting the identity was criminal. So they were just like, you mm. know, we don't trust him. And I don't know why gotcha. they did. And this is the Franciscans, not the police. 
Um, yeah. I don't okay. know why they didn't investigate the other two. It just says that Mr. Basile's were the ones that they checked into. During the process, Dylan Basile, who's older now, did offer through his attorneys to like sit down with Ritter and discuss everything one-on-one, but Ritter turned it down. All members of Covenant House and Bruce Ritter continued to assert his innocence throughout this whole process and afterwards for many years, and they deny all allegations of sexual misconduct, um, which were, at this point, beyond their statute of limitations in New York City to prosecute. Oh, okay. And after his case was closed, and they decided nothing not to go forth, newspapers reported that Ritter had, at one point, withdrew 140 k from a youth trust that he had set up. Whoa just claiming to have paid back most of it. Um, okay. <laughs> it also came out that he was awarding his niece and nephew $350,000 in fees under no-bid contracts for work on Covenant House for years. So he was... I don't know if they were phony or not, but he was basically giving them the contracts to... Right. You know, renovate these Do places for Do any kind of renovations House. or stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it was directly right to his niece and nephew. And the Franciscan Order's investigation concludes with the decision that... He is to return to daily living in the Franciscan community and just no longer work with the youth. Hmm. Um, and the district attorney did not take any charges forth for financial improprieties. Um, wow. Yeah. Since his leaving of Covenant House, a woman named Sister Mary Rose McGeady had taken over a lot. Um, I don't know if she took over his position specifically, but I mention her because she's the one who's credited with saving the Covenant House after the big scandal. Hmm. The COO says of her, she courageously led that organization from difficult times to successful times. It took fortitude and strength, and much of the credit for Covenant House's success goes to her leadership. She recognized what was important and the significance of accountability, and she realized those things had to be done to gain the confidence of the public. End quote. And by all counts now, Covenant House seems to be a reputable charity doing good work. Right. And... It seems like a lot of really good things did happen at Covenant House, aside mm-hmm. from these allegations, and he obviously wasn't at each location. So, right. you know, hopefully we can hope that a lot of other good things were happening simultaneously. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and on October 12th, 1999, at age 72, Bruce Ritter dies from his complications of his disease, which was cancer, which still very private about what kind of cancer he had. Mm-hmm. His mass was very private and very small. And as far as some of the survivors, the only information I have is that Daryl Basile is, he's now 62 years old. Um, he's still haunted by his experiences at Covenant House, but he is one of the main people who speaks publicly now. He has done a lot of press and like he goes to schools and different places and tries to fight for justice for victims. And he also speaks out against the church and the um, Catholic Church in general. He wants, mm-hmm. you know, allegations like this to be taken seriously. And he ar- argues a lot that, you know, when you take a organization to court, like the CEO has to answer for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so why shouldn't the Pope have to answer for what's going on at the, at the Catholic Church? A fair question. Yeah. And so that's his mission now. Um, he says, quote, we live with it for the rest of our life. It doesn't end. Can I, before you go on, can I go back to something you just said? Oh, yeah. So you mentioned, like, you know, there was probably lots of good work happening at these various facilities around. And I, I'm sure there was. Mm-hmm. I question, though, why, like, if you're an organization that is helping homeless youth, why do you have $38 million in the bank? 
Right. And they were a small operation that were small housing units, and they opened up Uh to like a different format when they became more popular, I guess. Okay. So I don't know. I just, yeah, it seems to me like when you're, (laughs) when people literally have no resources and you have $38 million, like maybe some of that should be going to the people you're trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a lot of funds were mismanaged early on, especially. Yeah. Um, so Daryl Basile now lives in Texas, and he's been married for 27 years to his wife. They're very happy. And he and another survivor of Ritter have filed civil suits under the Child Victims Act, which we talked about in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the act that includes the, the lift of the statute of limitations for sexual abuse and rape charges for two years. Do you remember that or no? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do. Yes. Okay. So... Under that act, they're able to file civil suits even um, far past his death, and so they've pursued that. And it's just an ironic fate for the legacy of this man's life, because he was someone whose mission was originally, and I quote, to help children find a way out of the gutters and brothels and strip joints where their young bodies are in demand as objects of pleasure for lustful adults, end quote. And that is the end of the story of the Covenant House scandal involving Bruce Ritter. And um, the name, again, of the survivors are Kevin Kite, Paul Johnson, John Mellican, and Daryl Basile. I wish you could see my face right now because that last quote was so skeezy to me. I know. I just <laughs> it made me really uncomfortable. I know. I, I just read that early on. Um, and then I, when I saw what actually he is accused of and yeah. in my mind is most likely guilty of... Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just so disgusting. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh. Wow. Well, good job. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd never heard of that before. No, me either. And it definitely, you um, know, just is one of many <laughs> scandals to come in the Catholic Church, yeah. unfortunately. I And I know we've talked about it in previous episodes, but if you haven't watched the documentary The Keepers uh, on Netflix, it's a really good documentary incredible. and kind of deals with similar subjects. Yeah, really, really incredible. Well, how would you rate the episode? Okay, I really enjoyed this episode. Okay. I thought it was great. I'm giving it an A. Bam. Yeah, I mean, we had some really high quality acting. I think... Like, even all the bit actors, other than William H. Macy, who I'm not calling a bit actor, Mm -hmm. but was playing a smaller part in the episode. Like, Maggie was a really good actor. Judy Reyes was a good actor. Sister Bettina wasn't amazing, but she was fine. Yeah, you know, she was stoic. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to give it a B plus. Okay. Okay. Just because I want to reserve any A rating for, like, a truly stellar episode. Yeah, yeah. As I was watching it, I was like, I like this episode. I turned to Davey. He was watching it with me. I was like, this is a good one. (laughs) (laughs) And how about how it dealt with the issue? I'm going to give it a C plus. Um, Okay. And I think it, my main two issues with how it dealt with the issue, (laughs) um, what a wide vocabulary I'm using right now, (laughs) are... I don't like that in the episode he's convicted, where in real life, you know, that, that is yeah. not what happens. Not yeah. And often not what happens in this specific type of case. Correct. So it just paints like, oh, look, yeah, there's easy. Yeah, he went for rape one and he got it and great. Yeah. So, and the girl was lying and it she really was lying, you know, and like to put that narrative out there that, you know. Um, victims of sexual assault and survivors of sexual assault are lying about it 
is just so damaging because it's so not the case and it's such yeah. a belief that people have. So, you know, yeah. didn't think it did a great job with that. Yeah, I would agree. I think I would give it a C minus mm-hmm. for how it dealt with stuff. Like, you know, uh, there were moments where, like, obviously the the defense attorney <sighs> said awful things about sex workers. Oh my so God, yeah. terrible. But yeah, I think my main beef was just like the idea that that there are so many cases of rape and sexual assault that have mountains of evidence that never get prosecuted or never end up in a conviction. But this sort of one that Stone was like, I think I have enough for a case, like led to a conviction, just seems really out of out of connection with reality. Because <laughs> I was just really quickly, I googled, uh, or I went on the Rain website to see the statistics mm-hmm. on uh, sexual assault. So out of every thousand, only 300 are reported to the police. Of those, only 50 lead to arrest. Of those, only 28 will lead to a conviction. And of those, only 25 will the perpetrator be incarcerated. So out of a thousand sexual assaults, only 25 lead to a conviction with incarceration. Unbelievable. So, yeah. Well, great. Great. I mean, that's not great, but great, great job. Great episode. Thank you. And huzzah. (laughs) Just a quick, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Segway. You mentioned yes. Rain, and I thought of Tori Amos immediately. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask: in the Fashion Court episode, are we covering yes. the picture, the uh, the boy in his room with the TV? Yes. Okay. So, listeners, last week, and said it was the Lilith Fair on the TV. Was it? I looked it up, and we'll talk oh about it god. in the Fashion Court. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, I can't wait. Oh, and by the way, I'm changing my vote. C minus. You're right. I hated that <laughs> word he used in the courtroom. I totally forgot about that vile scene. I'm literally throwing yeah. up thinking of it. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that for $0.00 a month, you, yes you, can help support our <laughs> podcast simply by rating and reviewing on whatever platform you're currently using to listen to this episode? Yes. And also, most people find a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying our show, please tell a friend. And we love, love, love connecting with our listeners is my favorite favorite part so feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and find us on instagram twitter and facebook at ripped headlines and you know share some warm and fuzzies with us yeah and don't forget to check out our website rippedheadlinespod.com the link to our patreon is on there and as we said at the beginning thanks to that mysterious letter in my attic we now know that you get some amazing perks Uh, by signing up to our Patreon, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Exactly. And thank you so much for listening to Riff from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye!